Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Again, we are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, in chapters uh, 11 and 12, Jesus has been dealing with some confrontation, and He's been dealing with rejection and things of that nature. So chapter 13 gives us another one of the five major blocks of teaching that we get from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, and this is just a whole bunch of parables. And these are wonderful parables, some of them very familiar, maybe some of them a little less familiar. Today is certainly one of the most familiar of the parables in this chapter, the parable of the four soils or the parable of the sower. I've titled the sermon just that, the parable of the four soils. And just so you know, if you're looking at Matthew 13 in front of you, you will see that there's a first section, verses 1 through 9, where he tells the parable. Just follow me here. First, first nine verses of the chapter, he tells the parable, and then you see there's an interruption. Verses 10 through 17, he deals with the purpose of his parables. And then back verses 18 to 23, he then explains the parable of the sower. So I'm going to skip that middle section today, the purpose of parables. Lord willing, that will be the sermon text next Sunday. In the meantime, I'm going to take the, the parable of the sower and the explanation on both sides, and that will be our sermon text for today. Some weeks I agonize over sermon points. They do not come naturally to me. This one was not hard. <laughs> I had four soils, and the four soils are the four points. So the four points of the message are exactly what you might think. Number one, the pathway soil. Number two, the rocky soil. Number three, the thorny soil. And number four, the good soil. So I'm going to read the first nine verses and then verses 18 to 23. So again, this is the word of the Lord, Matthew 13, starting in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Skipping to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Let's bow our heads together. 
Heavenly Father, I know that this is familiar to many of us. I'm sure numerous people in this room grew up hearing this story uh, or this parable told in different contexts and probably have heard it preached on and have studied it uh, in the past. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, show us what is really here and make this fresh to us, to, to, to us, even if it's familiar. Make it fresh. Uh, I pray that we would make new, get, see new insights today in this passage. And most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would give us the humility to directly receive what this text is saying to us, that we would uh, see uh, what this text says, how it applies to our lives, that you would give us hearts that have good soil, that we would be receptive of your word, Lord, that we would not be hard-hearted against it, but that we would receive it for what it says and that we would follow it and trust in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, parables, I will talk more about next Sunday, why Jesus is speaking in parables and what the parables mean. Uh, to boil this parable down, uh, very simply, the main point of the parable is there are four basic ways in which people respond to the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. There's four different categories of how you can respond to the gospel. And Jesus is saying, the kind that is truly believing and saving is the kind that produces fruit. Uh, fruit is the necessary result of truly receiving the word of Christ. So we're going to jump in here with the very first soil, which is the pathway soil. And let, let me just say, when this was first preached, when this, when this was first given by Jesus, what would have been shocking to his original audience, because think, he's speaking to Jewish people, first century, who are expecting the kingdom to break in any time, that's, that's the context in which he's in. Are they expecting the kind of Christ and the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing? Not, not really. They're expecting something different. So Jesus tells the shocking truth that when the message of the kingdom comes, there was going to be a very mixed response. It's not going to be a 99% receptant rate amongst even God's own people, the Jewish people. No, there's going to be a large rejection rate. Uh, three out of the four soils don't receive the word and produce fruit. And so Jesus is showing that there's going to be a mixed and even in some ways a negative response, but there will also be a positive response as the message of the kingdom is preached. And as you know, the crowds are great. Let's look at the first verse of Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. Well, let's stop there. Matthew's saying that this, this happened on the same day. Matthew does not like to waste words. He's connecting this to chapter 12. Remember the Pharisees rejecting him, the, all, the warning about the return of the unclean spirit? Jesus is being linked directly to the confrontation and the rejection he has just received in chapter 12. On the same day that the, the rejection and hostility is coming, Jesus tells these parables. You see the connection. These parables are meant to explain the mixed response he's been receiving in these chapters. So what does he do? He's at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, have been to the Sea of Galilee. I have not. Uh, and you've got about 13 miles north to south, I think about nine miles east to west, I believe, something along those lines at the deepest part, about 140 feet deep today. It could have been a little different at Jesus' day. But Jesus would have gone along the edge of the, sea of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And what does he do? He decides to get a little distance from the crowd. Because up until now, the crowd is about three inches away from Jesus. Remember the woman with the issue of blood just trying to find, can I even touch the hem of his garment? They're pressing in all around. Jesus wants to teach. It's not going to work to teach if everyone is within arm's reach of you and there's thousands of people present. So what does Jesus do? He gets on one of the fishermen's boats. He pushes out a little bit from the edge of the shore. And now he's got a space between himself and his audience. He, 
Sound travels well across still water. Jesus, they even, they have, have, a, they have guesses of exactly where this may have happened, but Jesus gets out a little bit from the shore. There are thousands of people gathered on the shore. There's a separation. Jesus, interestingly, sits down to teach, and the whole crowd stands. Should we practice that some Sunday? I'll sit down, and you, you can all stand. We'll see what happens. Charles Spurgeon did say in his comment on that note, he said, it perhaps would reduce sleeping in the congregation. That's what he said. If the congregation stood for the sermon, I don't know, maybe I'd be falling asleep if I was sitting. I'm not sure what would happen. But um, Jesus sits, everyone else is standing on the shore as he begins to uh, speak, and he begins to speak in these parables. Again, next Sunday, I will say more, but just real quick, uh, people have had very different views about parables in church history. I don't want to get lost in this discussion. I'll just say this. Some of the early church fathers, even into the time of some of the reformers, would allegorize, which basically means every detail of the parable has a very specific sort of made-up point. And these things became I'm not trying to be silly. They became ridiculous. Uh, you, you would end up having, this refers to this, and they're just making things up out of whole cloth and having hundreds of specific applications out of a parable. Did Jesus intend a hundred specific things? No. Usually parables are much more simple in what they're getting at. Not every detail has a direct to life exact application every single time, but parables generally have one or a few major points. I'm not going to say that they only ever have one single point. I think that oversimplifies parables. But I think that here you have very clearly a, a series of connected ideas in this parable that go together, and Jesus makes it very clear what he means. Let me also say this. Not every parable in the New Testament by Jesus is interpreted by Jesus. Oh, we sometimes wish they were. But not always, do we, we have to kind of figure it out on our own sometimes. But in, in this parable, it's one of those ones where Jesus spells out what each detail means. Here's what the seed represents. Here's what the, sower, or, or here's what the soil represents. Jesus makes this abundantly clear as to what this is referring to. So let's look at verse 3 as the parable begins. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed, seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. The sower here most likely is Jesus himself. If you, if you glance ahead, verse 37, in another parable, making a different point, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, Jesus. Now, it's a different parable. The seed represents something different in that parable, but very likely the, the, the sower is Jesus himself, him preaching the message of the kingdom, the good news. And here's the secondary application. It's not the main point of the, of the parable. But I think, secondarily, we are all called to be the sower of the seed. We are all called to scatter God's good news broadly in the world. And let me just say, uh, again, the main point of this parable is not to be an evangelist, although that's certainly true. The main point is how we receive the word, not how we give the word. But let's just say, we should never, ever, ever say ahead of time, I think that person over there is bad soil. I don't think they're going to receive the word, so I'm not going to tell them the word. Anyone who begins to think, well, what if they're not chosen? What if they're not this? What if they're not that? What if they're going to be hostile? I'm not going to tell them the gospel. That is an unbiblical and unchristlike way to think about evangelism. Jesus says, scatter the seed abroad, every kind of soil, throw it everywhere you can. Don't ever think, well, they're probably not going to want to hear this, so I'm not going to say this. No, the sower casts seed everywhere the sower can cast seed. So that's, that should be an encouragement to us. We're told in Luke's version of the story, Mark and Luke have very similar, you can Luke chapter 8, you can look at later, Mark chapter 4, Luke 8, Mark 4, tell the story very similarly. Luke just says, the seed is the word of God. Matthew tells us in verse 18, or verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom. So the seed is the word of the kingdom or the good news of the kingdom. It's God's 
It's God's word. That's very clear here. So what, let me say one other thing as, I, as I'm introducing this. If you say, if, if you're being really honest with yourself, and maybe you're not a believer, and you hear what Jesus says today, and you go, you know what? I don't think I am good soil right now. I don't think I have been receptive to God's word. I think I have been hard-hearted against it. Here's what you should know. You don't have to stay the soil that you are because God is gracious and powerful and sovereign. And guess what? By nature, we were all hard, rocky soil, right? We were all path soil. None of us is born alive to God. We're all born dead in sin. We're all born the wrong soil. And God needs to do a heart transplant on every one of us. The only reason why there are so many in this room who I know are good soil and are producing good fruit is not because we're great people by birth. You know why? It's because God has done a work of grace in our heart, changing who we were into another person, a new creation who has new desires and longings. And it's only to God's glory that there is fruit being produced in this room by so many who are present. So don't ever say, I'm bad soil, it's hopeless for me. No, plead with the Lord to transform your heart and make you receptive to His Word and trust yourself in Christ. Uh, so the, 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 rock, the, the pathway soil, just so you know, I'm going to be jumping back and forth between the first half of our text and the second half because that's what I have to do because each soil is in both parts. So I'm going to keep jumping back and forth. Here's what we find out. The sower goes out to sow, and he's throwing the seed, and it lands on the pathway. I mentioned this the other week. In that time and place, they did not have fences normally around property. You just had pathways that you walked. Pathways could go around, but they often went straight through people's farmland and property. And so, it's usually the quickest route, right? We get there. So people would walk over and over hundreds of times, thousands of times people would walk on this little, it might be a couple feet wide trail that goes through farmland and fields and wherever it might be over the hills and down and across the area. And people walk this path hundreds and thousands of times. And what happens? All the grass dies. All, everything, all the life is dead. You've got hard, flat soil, like a trail that you might see in the woods. And Jesus says, as the sower sows, seed is going everywhere and seed even goes on the pathway, the pathway soil. And the pathway soil, is that going to be conducive to receiving seeds? No, I, I have to tell you, I'm not, I'm not much of an expert in these things, but even I can tell you that no, the, the pathway is not going to do well at receiving the seed into itself. Why? Because the path is so hard. The seed lands on top of it, it's scattered abroad, the birds are flying around, and the birds can see the seed very clearly lying on that dark uh, dirt path. There's the seed sitting there. The, the birds begin to come around when they see the sower, and they come down as soon as the sower walks away, and they pluck up these seeds, and nothing is planted, nothing grows, uh, it is only taken away. Let me, let me be clear here. The problem is never, in this parable, the problem is never with the seed. The seed is never the problem. God's word is never the problem. When, just hear me on this. If someone you love rejects the Bible because of a teaching on a moral issue or an ethical issue or what it says about God's judgment or how salvation works. When someone says that issue drives me crazy, I can't stand it. I want nothing to do with it. I want you to know in that moment, we love those people. We pray for those people. You might even weep over those people, but here's what you need to know. The fault is not in this book. The fault is never with the seed. The reason why I was a calloused false convert Christian as an early teenager is not because I was not clearly taught the Bible or that the Bible had a flaw. What was the flaw? The flaw was my hard heart that did not want to submit 
in the functional daily life to the Lordship of Jesus and did not want to delight in Christ as my Savior and satisfaction and treasure. I didn't want that. I wanted the benefits of Christ, but not Christ Himself. And so never blame the seed. We always blame our own hearts. It's the soil, not the seed that is to blame. Now, what creates this hard-heartedness? John MacArthur says it like this. The reason he does not understand is not due to any deficiency in the message, but to his own hard heart. He is stiff-necked. He is unconcerned with the things of God, completely indifferent to anything spiritual. The Word makes no penetration into his heart or mind. He does not give the gospel the least consideration, thinking it to be totally foolish. His heart has not been softened. He may be self-sufficient or self-satisfied or self-righteous. On such a person, the gospel has no effect. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, as he's called, uh, lived in the 1800s, second half of the 19th century. He was converted in 1850 and lived near the end of that century. Spurgeon said he was converted, I believe he was 16 years old, January of 1850, that wonderful story. But he talks about, I think it was several years, I think it was five years or so leading up to that where he was converted. You know what happened? He said for about five years, he was tormented, he said, by the law of God and by the fact that he himself knew he was not a Christian. And he said, that, he said the Ten Commandments were like ten, he speaks so poetically, I don't know how he comes up with these things, but he said, imagine the Ten Commandments like ten black horses that were riding over my heart and were tearing it up, ripping it up, uh, showing me conviction of sin and how deeply sinful I was. He said, yet I was unwilling truly to receive Christ. And he was torn between his guilt and truly receiving Christ. Well, his soil at least became open to receiving the word and eventually he did. But the hard-hearted are blinded to their need. I said this, I don't know if I said it here, but I know I said it in my, my class a couple of weeks ago in Bible class at school. I said, I think that one of, if not the most, deadly false beliefs in the world is that I'm basically a good person and I don't need saving grace. When you get to the bottom of virtually every other worldview, at the, at the rock bottom, it's I got this covered. I might need a little grace, a little help, but I fundamentally am not fundamentally evil in fundamental need of a transformed heart and life. If you feel that way about yourself, you will never become a Christian. You will never trust Christ until first the ground is broken up by God's law and the sense of guilt and shame is, is, is apparent and the desperate need for Christ is there. Until that happens, there is no... Uh, there is no uh, receptivity to the gospel. Now, I, I want to note here, did you know Satan in this text testifies to the power of God's word? L look with me at verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, Satan, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Do you hear this? Does Satan want Scripture lying dormant on the surface of your life, just sitting there waiting to sprout? Satan knows. This is, a, this is an accidental testimony to the power of God's Word from Satan. Satan knows. If the Bible is near you, if it's coming in your ears, if it is coming close to your heart, does he know that you could be in danger of becoming a Christian? Yes, he does. So as soon as he can, he wants to snatch the seed away. and He wants to remove it from your mind and your heart. He does not want you to think about it. Okay, I'm going to risk reading this. This could, I don't want to, uh, we should all stand up when I read this, shouldn't we? No one needs to fall asleep. L listen to this. So C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis was, was a flawed theologian. I think we can all admit he had some serious flaws in his theology, but he is a wonderful writer. And his book, The Screwtape Letters, if you don't remember, is an uncle talking to a nephew, demon. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, 
fictionalized story. Obviously, it's, it's kind of partly tongue-in-cheek, but he has, a, he has an uncle, an older demon who's talking to his younger demon. I know demons are not different ages. I know that there are no uncles. I, it's, 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 you know, it's screw tape letters, if you've read it. You understand how it works. And the, the two demons are talking to each other, and basically one demon who's more experienced is telling a younger demon how to tempt his patient into sin. And I'm just going to quote part of it because I thought this is a great example of the devil snatching the word. Here's how Lewis writes it. So remember, this is written from the standpoint of a demon. So the enemy is God. Follow that. Okay, so it's written from the standpoint of a demon. He's writing to his nephew, Wormwood. (laughs) As only C.S. Lewis could make these things up. Here's what he says. Quote, I once had a patient. This is the older demon talking about his guy he had tempted. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way towards God, towards Christ. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years work beginning to totter. Oh no, he might become a Christian, the demon is thinking. I suggested to this guy's mind that it was just about time he had some lunch. In fact, this was much too important to tackle at the end of a morning. Then the patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I added, much better you come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a a newsboy shouting in the uh, the midday paper, a number 73 bus uh, passing by, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which I mean the bus and the newsboy, uh, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. He is now safely in our father's house. He's died and he's now with the devil. That's, that's how this thing ends. Now, do you see here? Satan knows if your thinking or what comes into your mind begins to move towards the kingdom of God, Satan knows he's in trouble. He's going to do everything he can to what? Snatch that thing up right away. And how can he do it? Don't think about these things on an empty stomach. Go get lunch first. And by the time you're eating lunch, the thought is gone out of your mind. Now listen, let me make a secondary application of this text to all of us. Even if you're a believer, there's a secondary way in which we can still fall into this trap. See what I mean here? I don't mean rejecting the gospel. I mean, there's a secondary way that the devil can snatch things from us. It is so easy. I I know it's self-serving to speak of a sermon as an illustration. So I don't even know if I want to use this as an illustration, but it could be a sermon. It could be a Bible study. It could be your own reading of the Bible personally, family devotions, whatever it may be. Satan would love nothing more than after hearing God's word preached, taught, studied in a Bible study, read in the morning or in the evening with your devotions. Satan would love nothing more than for what you read to go out your mind as quick as possible, replaced by something on the internet, something on social media, some phone call you got to make, some text message. He wants that stuff gone out of your mind. Why? So that the fundamental application of those truths never connects in your life. He wants you to, okay, yeah, if you're going to prove of all the right theology and you never live it out practically, is he still winning some victory in your life? He's still able to snatch away. We don't want anything snatched away. We want the best we can to believe and apply all of what we hear from God's Word. Now, let me say here that it's possible to be hardened by the gospel, really by your heart in response to the gospel. You've heard the Puritans say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same gospel that melts some hearts hardens others. Why is that? Well, it's because of different soils that respond. This, is, this may be the most terrifying example of hard soil that I know of. Spurgeon gave this illustration. Imagine a blacksmith. Got the big anvil, hammering things out, different metals. 
It's the loudest place, right? If you come in there, you're holding your ears closed because it's deafening, just smashing metal on metal for hour after hour. He said, look at the blacksmith's dog sleeping soundly at the foot of the blacksmith while he pounds away on his anvil. How could a dog sleep peacefully for an hour while the blacksmith is hammering away? You know why? Because he's heard it for months and months and months, that same sound. It no longer startles the dog. It no longer makes the dog even open its eyes. The dog can sleep soundly while the blacksmith is hammering. This is the scariest thought. You can be raised in a godly Christian home and your heart can be hardened to the gospel and the pounding of the truth of the gospel in eternity is heard every day of your life from your parents, maybe at school, at church, on and on and on. You hear it day in and day out. But if your heart remains calloused and cold and hard, you can be like that dog, spiritually asleep and dead, even though the gospel truths are being pounded out right over your head every single day. And yet there's no feeling. There's no more shock at the word hell. There's no more startling at the idea of salvation by grace. There's no more awe and wonder at the resurrection of Jesus. It's the, I know all that stuff. I know all that stuff. I've heard that stuff. That stuff doesn't do anything for me. I don't care. I'm sick of that stuff. Give me something exciting. Give me something that'll make my life matter. I'm tired of this Jesus talk. That's the scariest place to be. And if you're in that place, I pray you wake up even now, as I'm speaking to you, that you would wake up and say, Lord, I have been sleeping underneath the pounding of the gospel. Awaken my heart. Make me tender. Take away the calluses so that I can truly feel the truth that you present in your word. Point number two, the rocky soil. Let's read here. Verse 5 and 6 and 20 and 21. Verse 5. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Just just to be clear, when I was younger, I misunderstood this parable. Rocky soil is not referring to something that we think of like gravel. Okay, a bunch, don't think of gravel, rocky soil. This is what it means. Jesus makes it clear that it is, it is soil without depth. So th- virtually everyone agrees on this. We're talking about a thin top layer of soil, maybe a couple of inches in the, in the Palestinian area, in the Israel area, and you've got just underneath it, you've got solid bedrock, limestone is what is normally there. So what you're dealing with is soil that might look promising. The seed falls on the soil. It's quickly taken in. The heat from the sun that warms the stone underneath causes it to germinate quickly. It begins to sprout. It shoots up quickly out of the ground. It looks very promising. It's the first perhaps to blossom and look like it's going to grow. Everything looks great. And before long, the sun starts beating down on it, that hot sun. And before long, the plant withers and dies because it has no nutrients, because it has no root system that goes down deep to get the nutrients to keep it alive. It hits rock. Two inches down, it hits solid bedrock, and it cannot sustain itself, and it dies. Well, the application, this application is so relevant for uh, where we live. This person immediately receives the word with joy. This is the youth camp conversion. I'm not saying people don't get truly saved at youth camp. I'm not saying that. People do get saved at youth camp. People also, though, have rocky soil at youth camp. And here's what I mean. You've got a, you've got a 13-year-old, 15-year-old who's at youth camp, 
and the gospel is, is, is presented, and the music is cranked up, and I'm not against using music, I'm just saying this is what happens, and a, a ch- child maybe starts to cry or feels great excitement, and the child comes forward and walks an aisle or prays with the leader and re- receives Christ or apparently receives Christ. And for several weeks, this child is lit up about the Bible. They are reading the Bible. They're talking about the Bible. They're talking about Jesus. They're going to church. Their whole life is turning around. Outward moral behavior is changing. Bad patterns of sin seem to evaporate overnight. This person looks like a completely new person. They're possibly baptized, and and they enter into church life, and on it goes. But Jesus says, it doesn't say that they fall away instantly after receiving it. It says instantly after persecution, they fall away. This person might be a false convert for six years, for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years. But here's when you find out something is wrong. When, you know what's happening with the rocky soil? This person was excited about Jesus. Listen, because the gospel was a really great add-on to what they were already living for. They want comfort. Jesus gives them everlasting life. They want to get rid of guilt feelings. Jesus gives them forgiveness. They want to feel like there's someone in the sky who cares for them, some God above them who cares about them and is directing their steps. They they, they think they get all that. It feels great, but they are seeing Jesus fundamentally as an add-on to their life. You say, why do I say that? Because they don't have roots. And roots are what get you through unpleasant circumstances. Now, Now, hear me. When you become a believer truly, Jesus becomes the center of our life. Not perfectly, but genuinely. He becomes central in our heart, our affections, our values. Which means, as a true Christian, when we lose all of the comfortable circumstances around us, it pushes us into Jesus. This is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian when it comes to difficulty. Suffering pushes you into Jesus as a Christian. You go deeper with Jesus in the hardship, in the affliction. You're like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking with with, with the angel in the furnace. It's in the furnace that God shows up, right? There's a way in which we meet with God more profoundly in the difficult days than often in the happy days. Because it's it's not the things that we're living for, it's Jesus. And when those are taken away, we, 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 we lean deeply into Him. Trials try our faith. They test our faith. They show whether it's real. Real faith comes out of that furnace brighter gold. False faith burns up in the furnace. Why? Because if I'm living, if Jesus is my Lord, I say, just to get me better circumstances or better feelings, when those things shrivel up, my faith in Jesus shrivels up with it because it wasn't really about Jesus. It was about what he could give me. And when what, I, what I'm getting goes away, I lose Jesus with it. Does that make sense? He was not the sinner. The circumstances were, and when they left, Jesus, faith in Jesus goes with them. These people are not truly converted. They're not losing their salvation, by the way. They never had salvation. They never had roots. They never produced fruit. They had apparent salvation, a false conversion. I had a false conversion. I know what this is like from personal experience. I know what it was like to be at a youth camp as a falsely converted Christian and to be emotionally stirred by the fact that other kids appeared to be becoming Christians. I was emotionally stirred by three kids professing faith that night in the gym. They went back and stood behind the bleachers with the youth pastor. I still remember it. I was probably 14 or 15. I was at early high school. I was emotionally stirred by what was happening. I can guarantee you, looking back now, I I did not yet know the Lord. It is possible for there to be receiving the Word with joy and certain kinds of emotional experiences that are not lasting and are not truly coming from a transformation of heart and, and and a root that goes down into the person of Jesus. Let's move on to point number three, thorny soil. This is verses 7 and 22. Verse 7. 
Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. You know, one way to think about this, tell me what you think. Rocky soil to me is the test of adversity. They're persecuted and they go, they leave. That's the test of adversity and they fail. This is the test of prosperity, riches, things of this world. I mean, you could take it one way. I think this is emphasizing more the, the good things of life are coming abundantly. And so your heart becomes knit to the world rather than Christ. So the test of adversity, we can fail. Suffering leads us away from Christ. Or the test of prosperity, someone can fail. I mean, I've seen things. I, I can't judge the heart, but I can see the outward actions. I won't go into detail here. It's not a person that, that is a part of our church. There's a person, though, that I've known for a long time. They had what I, hope, I still hope was a genuine conversion. I watched this person basically become a Christian right in front of my eyes over, over time. I saw dramatic change in this person's life. And then... Positive circumstances, job's going well, money's coming in, and then years go by, and it just seems like the spiritual part just starts going down, down. It's a slow thing. This is not usually overnight. I mean, think about it. You get the new position, money's coming in pretty well. You, you start to feel like this is where it's at. This is where I'm getting the, the excitement of life. This is what's really giving me purpose and meaning. And you start leaning towards those things. The cares of life. Concern about wealth, uh, concern about these kinds of things begin to take over our heart. Well, let me be careful. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to be poor. The question is, what is our heart doing in relationship to these things? A poor person can get caught up in the cares of this world and the love for riches. You, know, you can be poor and be obsessed with those things, or you can be wealthy. Here's the point. Compared to the rest of the world, we're all filthy rich in this room, okay? Compared to the rest of the world in history, we're all in the rich category. Is it not true that we can begin to rest on the things of this world that begin to creep in? Every spring and summer, we know what it's like if you're working on your yard. Those thorns come out of nowhere. They just, they just come back and no matter, just, they, they can take over a plant. They can completely choke something out. They can fill up in your bushes. They can just be everywhere sticking up. They grow so much faster than everything that's good. Uh, they grow at three times the speed, it seems like. And you're trying to get down to the root to get those things out. Here's the picture. You have a bud uh, that looks like life, a little bud springing up. And then right next to it, you have the little thorn patch springing up. And as time goes on slowly, the thorns get bigger, and that little, that little sprout never develops fruit. The thorns come in, the roots and above, they choke out slowly, and they, no fruit is produced. Quote 1 Timothy 6.10. We know this verse, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now listen to this. It is through this craving. It's not a sin to have money. It's a sin to crave money. Now listen to the difference. It's not a sin to have money. It's a sin to crave it. Through this craving, what happens? When you crave money, what happens? Through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not 
in him. We need to all, all of us, we need to be aware of this. I'm just guessing, I can't prove this, but I would just guess the older you get, the more likely these kinds of things are to be getting around you. Spurgeon talked about this. He said, you see someone who starts getting involved in all kinds of things and you just want to watch, is the heart beginning to move away from its groundedness in Jesus? Notice the last word of verse 22. It proves unfruitful. These people are not genuine Christians. These are not genuine believers. They never produce fruit. Their faith never comes to fruition and it is not lasting. So there's no fruit and the faith doesn't last. This is not genuine faith. This is a false faith. All right, let's move into the good soil. Point number four, the good soil. Verses eight and nine and verse 23. Verse eight. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now listen to this. J.C. Ryle says it like this. There is only one evidence of hearing the word rightly. I mean, this is, this is the point. I mean, I, I, if, I was to try, if I was to try to boil what Jesus is saying down to one point today, which I, I think is oversimplifying it, but if there's one point that Jesus is making, I think this is what it is. What is the evidence of rightly and truly receiving the word into your heart? The evidence is that you bear fruit. And that fruit must be a persistent thing that lasts to the end of your life here on earth. It can't be temporary, kind of false fruit. It has to be genuine fruit and it has to be lasting fruit all the way to the end. Now listen, does every Christian bear the same amount of fruit? No, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Let me just say here, I was gonna say this later, I'll just say this here. Um, You know, I I don't know, maybe you feel like I'm, I'm I'm in the, 30-fold feels generous sometimes. You might be, does 10 count? Does 10-fold? <laughs> where, where is this thing at? Maybe you feel like you're at the lesser amount here of fruit. Here, I want to say there's nothing stopping you from reaching more fruit. And, and let, me, let me be clear here. Uh, this is not, I'm not, fruit does not mean uh, your impact on other people. This is referring to the transformation of your character. That needs to be said very clearly. It's not like someone has led five people to Christ, someone's led 30 people to Christ, someone's led 50 people to Christ. That's not what this is talking about. You could be a false convert and lead someone to Christ. I could name people who are not truly Christians who led people to Christ and then later walked away from the faith. So we're not talking about outward transformation of other people. It's talking about the transformation of our character. And listen, who, if you feel like you're not producing much fruit, you think you're producing real fruit, but it's not as much as you would like to see. And that's, that's all of us, if we're being honest. Nothing should stop you from saying, Lord, I want to see far more fruit this year than I saw last year or the last decade or the last 40 years of my life. I want to see more fruit now than I've ever seen. Don't don't hesitate to pray that way. Say, Lord, I want to see more and more transformation of my character and my heart. I want to see more of a love for your word, your people, on and on. Let's, Let's think that way. Let me just take a moment here. Hold your spot and let's go back to Colossians 1 where we started the service. Colossians chapter 1. And I won't read 
this whole section, but I would recommend further study. Colossians 1, verses 3 to 13, or 3 to 14. Those two big paragraphs in probably most English Bibles, Colossians 1, 3 to 14, this is a great text to go to to see what fruit means. It's not talking about how you impact all kinds of other people. It's referring to your transformation of your character. Let me just give you a few samples here. Verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you understood the grace of God and truth. Do you see here? What's the fruit? It's faith in Christ, love for the saints, increasing hope in heaven. It's your hope laid up in heaven. Look at, skip down to verse uh, nine. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here's what fruitfulness looks like. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So knowing how God wants us to live in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that means wisely applying God's word to our everyday life. So as verse 10 to walk, that's live our daily life. It's a walk, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Do you hear that? When you hear that, does something inside of you say, I want more of that? I want to bear more fruit, more good works. I want to increase in the knowledge of God. I want to bear through difficulty and endure with joy and patience trusting more fully in my Father than I have previously? Is there a part of you that wants to participate more in that? That would be a great text for further study. But let's turn back to our main text. Let me just, again, I want to make some basic things really clear as I close. First thing I'll say is this. Our fruit doesn't save us. Our good works don't save us. They are the result of God's saving work in our life. I know that's something we talk about all the time here, but I never want a Sunday to be unclear on that point. Our good works are the result of God's saving activity in our life, and they are the evidence of a transformation of heart. But here's what I want to say. The fruit has to be there. Not because it earns anything, but because if we are truly born again, the fruit is an inevitable byproduct of what God is doing. It's an inevitable result, and it must be there to prove that our faith is genuine, and it must be fruit that lasts until the end of our life. We must persevere in the faith. I'll wrap up with these comments from a commentator who said this, the sky is the limit for, fruit, for fruitful uh, soil followers. <laughs> the sky's the limit for how much fruit we can produce by God's grace. Then he says this, I found this encouraging. Most of us look at ourselves and we wonder whether God made a mistake when he made us. We have so little to offer, so few gifts we feel, but we could not be more wrong. Paul was laughed at by his opponents in Corinth, yet he said he rejoiced in his weakness because it made the power of God perfect in him. Here's what I want to say. If you feel like, I, I, I don't have a lot to offer, the very fact that you feel that way means that's what you should be offering. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've got very little. I'm weak. My gifts feel very limited. Lord, I feel very weak and helpless. Take that to the Lord. 
And, and I think the Lord loves to multiply our weakness by His power. Nothing is more pleasing to the Lord than coming to Him saying, Lord, I don't have it all figured out. I don't have enough strength. I can't pull this off by myself. God, I'm so limited. I'm so finite. Please use me, change me, help me to make an impact on others. That is when the Lord will get the glory and we get the joy of participating with Him in impact we can have on those around us. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I do ask that anyone within the sound of my voice who has heard these things many, many times and feels like the blacksmith's dog who just hears the, the hammering out of these truths and just sleeps, the conscience is asleep, there's no sense of urgency, there's no sense of even concern anymore. God, I pray that you would awaken any individuals in that situation. I pray that you would give new desires and new longings and open the eyes of the heart. God, for those who feel like, yeah, maybe at some point I had an emotional experience, I received the word with joy, but there hasn't been any lasting transformation of my life. God, I pray that you would convict and convince them of the truth of Jesus and that they would come to the gospel and receive it even now. I pray for any who are in the thorny soil category where the, the love of the things of this world has just taken over. It's just become the dominant focus of our mind. It's the primary thing we think about, we daydream about, uh, we wake up in the morning obsessed with. It's worldly things, not even bad things, just things that are too important in our heart and are displacing Christ in our heart. Help us to repent of that. And God, for those of us who by your grace have received the word truly and are beginning to produce fruit, Lord, I pray that you would give us the humility to admit that we need your strength to produce more fruit. We need your help. And I pray that we would produce a hundredfold, far more than we think is even possible because of your work in our heart and in our life. So be with us now, Lord, as we sing. We pray.